Rebag is a luxury resale marketplace. They have a curated collection of investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry. Each piece is carefully vetted and verified by experts. You can buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Hermes, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com to get 10% off your first purchase with code REBAG10. That's Rebag.com to get 10% off your first purchase with code REBAG10. Welcome back to another episode of Ask Men Anything. It's me, your host, Emma Wilman. Thank you so much for being here. Before we get into today's episode, which, ooh, it's a doozy. I have a I have a uh, totally platonic type crush on the guest. This guy, he was so interesting. And I'm going to introduce him in one second. But some show dates I want to share with you real quick. I'm going to be in Ann Arbor, Michigan, March 1st. I'm going to be at the Syracuse Funny Bone, March 22nd and 23rd. I'm going to be in Key West. My dad's actually going to come with me to those ones. At the Comedy Club of Key West, that's the March 28th through the 30th. And then I will be in Chicago, March 4th, 5th, and 6th. And then Zany's Nashville, April 7th. Oops, I'm an idiot. I'll be in Chicago, April 4th, 5th, and 6th. And then Zany's Nashville, April 7th. Those are the dates off the top. I've got a bunch more coming up. I am emmawilman.com. Those are where I keep my dates. So today's guest, Justin Lay Miller, is a social psychologist, Kinsey Institute Research Fellow, and the host of Sex and Psychology, a podcast. We talk a lot about sex, sexual psychology, sexual fantasies, and we go over a few questions, more questions than normal we get to in this one because I was so interested on having him weigh in, specifically on a question that I went over on the You Up podcast. It came out about two weeks ago. Check out that episode. If you don't already listen to the show, it's so funny. It's one of my favorite shows to listen to personally. Check out that episode because we get into a really interesting question and he really illustrated some points that I hadn't thought of and I'm so grateful that we also asked it to him. Love your thoughts. Write in at ama at betches.com. Please rate and review. It really helps on iTunes, Spotify, wherever you listen. Just go pop in a little note, whatever it is. I appreciate it. Thank you guys so much for being here. Here is our episode. Welcome to the show. Happy to be here. Sometimes when I say welcome to the show, it feels like I'm saying welcome to like the shit show because I've already done something obnoxious in 10 seconds, but, but welcome to the show. <laughs> I had fun listening, doing research on you because I don't know if you get this a lot. I've, there's been one other person I've talked to like this, but when I listen, your voice is very calming to me. Well, Do you get you that know, a lot? You're not the first person who said that. And I actually recorded the audiobook for my book, Tell Me What You Want, which came out a few years ago. And I was never really that comfortable or confident in my voice before but Hmm. recording that book like totally changed everything and then I started hearing feedback from people and sometimes people would say that my voice was very erotic to them or turned them on other people interesting that it was very calming and like they would just play my audiobook on long car rides and their dogs were never calmer than that when they were (laughs) in the car so either way I take it as a compliment it can be part of your new intro that he's got away with dogs (laughs) Before we get into our questions, I was just curious on a personal note, have you always been interested in sex and exploring fantasies? I wouldn't say I've always been interested in it. I mean, I didn't know that what I do now was even a possible job back mm. when I was in high school or college. I went to K 
Catholic schools for a lot of my life, including from my undergraduate and master's degrees. And so it wasn't until I was working on my PhD and was assigned to be a teaching assistant for a human sexuality course that I was like, oh, there's this whole world of sex research that's out there. And that's fascinating to me. I thought it was really interesting that more money and funding doesn't go into research for sexual fantasies because I was listening to a podcast where you mentioned that, that but I was so surprised by that because sex, at least like in America, that which is my frame of reference, it's like we use sex to sell everything, like sexual fantasies. Hey, maybe I'm just sexualizing everything, but I'm pretty sure it's just like like images of like like shampoo, yogurt, buy this car and you're more likely to have sex. Like do this, you're more likely to have sex. Sex is everywhere. So I would think that every company would want to know what people's sexual fantasies are so then they could like weave their product into them. You know, it's this interesting thing. I, I've written about this before that we live in this very paradoxical society where sex mm. is all around us and we hear all right. the time that sex sells. And you just provided a lot of great examples of that and how we see it in everyday life. But at the same time, we have this really hard time just talking about sex. And then when you start getting into things like studying sex, then it starts to become controversial. And, you know, sex being controversial as a science, this has been true since its inception. You know, if you go back to the days of Alfred Kinsey in the 1940s and 50s, he was doing this pioneering research where he was interviewing thousands of Americans across the country about their sex lives. And it was spectacularly controversial because at that mm. time it was incredibly taboo to talk about sex. And while we talk about it more openly today, it's still this taboo thing. Like we're just we feel that we're not able to talk about it or explore it. And so then that creates these roadblocks to doing any kind of research and getting funding for it. So it's, it's hard to be a sex researcher sometimes. That's interesting. So it's a lot, some of the roadblocks are about people feeling like reserved and sharing what their fantasies are. Absolutely. I, that's, that's surprising. Cause I would think with the internet, people would be able to do it anonymously, but I guess it makes you, when you have to really, if you're thinking about really honestly sharing your sex fantasies, it, it kind of, when you're articulating it, it's not just you and Google or whatever. You're also admitting it to yourself. And I think that's complicated. Well, you know, it's interesting that when I did the survey for Tell Me What You Want, I collected the sex fantasies of more than 4,000 Americans from all 50 states. And people sometimes wrote pages about what their favorite fantasy was. And here I am, like an anonymous stranger on the internet, and right. they're willing to tell me all of this depth and detail about like what's going on in their head, what they're thinking about when they have sex or when they masturbate or just when they're daydreaming. And a lot of them have never shared this with anyone else before, but they'll tell me a stranger on the internet because it feels safer to do that than to actually express it to a partner. So we're in this weird place where we find it easier sometimes to have sex than to talk about it, even with the people that we're actually having sex with. And that's just kind of weird. Isn't that, that is definitely, I, that resonates as like the damn truth for sure. <laughs> Cause like all, I relate to that like 100%. I also related to, it seems like people are really interested in knowing what other trying to see if so, they're quote unquote normal like is it how many times a week is it normal to have sex how many people masturbate to this how common is this sexual fantasy and i am that's something i would be i go to that a lot I'm, where i'm always like i mean i per, i always like being like well what are other people doing what is what are, that's just kind of it's like how part of how i like to communicate see what's going on <laughs> with everybody else but especially with sex it's like a i wonder why why is that do you think it's people are afraid of being 
different or that their sexual fantasies, like at the core, it's like, oh, if my sexual fantasy is so, you know, so many, if so many people have it, then it's like, I'll have more people to share it with. Or is it just like a fear of being quote unquote weird? You know, am I normal is the single most common question that I get. And I hear really? it about, yeah. And I don't think I'm normal at all with the, with the, I mean, I can't imagine, I mean, I, I would say I would not fall into, not that there is a normal, but I wouldn't think that I would necessarily fall into those. I, I'm pretty, I'm very fruity off the top. And then, you know, I didn't mean to cut you off, but, but yeah, there is that. Sorry, keep going. Well, well, so people ask this question, am I normal with regard to their fantasies, but they also ask it with regard to their bodies, with mm. regard to how much or how often they're having sex or how they masturbate or how much porn they're watching. So it doesn't matter what it is. People seem to place a lot of value on wanting to know, am I normal when it comes to my sex life? Because if I'm not, then that must mean there's something really wrong with me. And I think it's because we attach all of this importance to sex in our lives. And if our sex life isn't matching up to other people's in some way, or we seem weird or strange in some way because we're turned on by something different, then that has a really big impact on how we see ourselves and how we feel about ourselves. So, I mean, I'm a social psychologist. And one of the things we know that humans do is they're always engaging in social comparison. They're always looking at what am I doing relative to what other people are doing? And they infer a lot of their own self-worth based on that. And so sex isn't really unique in that way because we're always doing this in every aspect of our life. So it makes sense that we do it with sex, but with sex being this thing that we just don't really talk about or we don't get any really good education in, it's super easy to feel weird because we don't know what normal even is. That's actually a very calming that is a that's a that tying sex i think that is a roadblock too like not thinking of sex as integrated into all other parts of like the human condition where it's not like having it be segmented off even in how we would talk about it part is part of what then i think makes people feel isolated and isolation doesn't breed anything nope. anything good do you get and this is my last off script question so for the but do you because in some of your talks we're talking about you know, people attracted to taboo, and then you are so focused on data. Do you get turned on by no data? Since so much of your work is like data oriented, does that is that something that is like erotic to you? Like, or does that just is that like anxiety producing? I don't know. I mean, I wouldn't say my work is necessarily erotic to me. I think like mm. there's this interesting perception, like people when they think of a sex researcher, they assume that we're all hypersexual. We're having sex. Totally. You're like just horned up, like bouncing around on the bed. Yeah. But really you're the reality I'm sure is a stark contrast to that. Yeah. And most of the time I'm sitting in front of my computer, like with Microsoft word open and like some statistical program and like a right. bunch of numbers. And it is not like a sexy experience. It's an exciting experience. Like there is a certain thrill that comes out of like, data and especially when you have new discoveries and when i learned for example about a new sexual fantasy that i had never heard of before i'm like wow this is really interesting to me and then i get super excited to like do a deep dive and figure out like is there any other research or data on this and i just want to know more and so you know there is that kind of excitement that happens in the research process it's not necessarily an erotic one though <laughs> i was just talking about that with my therapist about excitement and how sometimes it can be sexually charged but it's a different type of sexual charge we were talking about it in relation to food because i was talking about i was like a lot of times i i have these out like these like lustful fantasies about like obsessions about like food and sugar 
and I'm ADHD, so it, I think for me a lot of times it's wanting that dopamine hit. And I was like, it's not sexual where I want to like, ha- like it's have an orgasm around the food, but it is sexual because the lust level is up so many notches that it feels like a heightened level of excitement where it's a little sexual. You know, and there can be this sort of bleed over between sexual arousal and other kinds of arousal Mm. because, you know, it's activating common pathways in the body. And so there's this thing that I find really interesting in social psychology. It's what we call excitation transfer. And it's where arousal in one situation can amplify sexual arousal in another situation or vice versa. You know, there have been really fascinating studies they've done, for example, where they ask people how attracted they are to this stranger. And either before that, they will have just gotten off of a roller coaster, you know, they they will have done (laughs) something really exciting, or they're like standing in line waiting around to, to do something really exciting. And what they find is that people who are in this heightened state of arousal, whether it's from exercise or doing something exciting, or maybe it's even, you know, having eaten that food that they really craved, you know, that can amplify their feelings of sexual arousal because it just puts them in this heightened, generalized physiological state of arousal. And then what happens is we have this misattribution of arousal that can happen where we've got these competing sources of things that might be creating arousal. And we're like, well, which one is it? And we oftentimes label it as sexual arousal, even though there might be something else that's contributing to it. That's so interesting. And it also is kind of like, so if you, someone, a good date could be going to an amusement park, or if you're really trying to meet people, just wait out, not outside, not setting someone up to seem like a real creep, but like wait out off of the, off of a roller coaster, just put your best shirt on <laughs> and go out there and try to do your best. Try to catch people when they're already in a heightened state of arousal, because it is like, like I, what was the term you used? Um, misattribution of arousal. So that's what I get when I go by Subway and I see their cookies. I get this, like, there's something, I get this, like, instant, like, arousal, like, charge. And then I picture myself with all the cookies, like, rolling around with them. It gets very, and it's not, it, that's exactly what it is. You know, I have two thoughts there. One is that, <laughs> just as a side note, when I was a graduate student, one of my guilty pleasures was I would watch those terrible MTV dating shows. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, my God. Do you remember Next? Oh, yeah. I love that one. Shout outs to Next. <laughs> and one of the things I loved about watching those shows was that I could usually predict who the people were going to choose to go on a second date with often just based on the activity that they did with that person. And if they did something that was more exciting or arousing, they tended to pick that person. And it makes sense from a psychological standpoint. But the other quick thing I wanted to say was that I think there might be an interesting intersection there with ADHD, where if your attention tends to gravitate to other things pretty quickly, and you're in that sort of heightened state of arousal, it might be extra easy for that arousal to kind of transfer over into other things because the attention isn't focused as much. So some people with ADHD might be especially prone to having this sort of crossover between those feelings. I've always been into fantasizing focus and fantasy. Actually, that has been an area ever since I was a little kid, I would focus on fantasizing like as an escape. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Let me ask you, what's the first thing you'd do if you had an extra hour in your day? Go for a run, take a nap, scroll on TikTok, guilty, read a book, show up for a friend. What would it be? A lot of us spend our lives wishing we just had more time. The question is, time for what? 
If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. How are you going to know what to do if you don't even know what you want? I relate to that. I personally have benefited from therapy tremendously. It's been extremely helpful for helping me learn positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. It empowers me to be the best version of myself. I'm not there yet, but I'm trying. And now I even know what I'm kind of shooting for. My therapist once said to me, you know, you always spend so much time trying to win other people over. How about you try to win yourself over? Therapy isn't just for people who've experienced major trauma. It's for anybody that wants to process their life and just try to learn about how to be the best version of themselves. And if you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. This isn't another thing you need to stress out about. They will work around your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. All you have to do is visit betterhelp.com slash askmen today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash askmen. Now we have some questions about modern masculinity. So this is just for you. How has the concept of masculinity in general changed from when you were a kid to now? You know, it's interesting. I think it's changed a lot, right? When I was growing up, you know, I was a child in the in adolescent in the 80s and 90s. It was a different era when, in terms of like what it meant to be a boy or to be a man or to be masculine. And, you know, there was still this pretty kind of rigid adherence to traditional masculine gender role stereotypes. Like if you were a boy, you were supposed to be into sports and rough and tumble. And like you had this very specific set of interests and you had to be tough and aggressive and all these other kinds of things. And, you know, frankly, for me as a boy back then, I didn't really fit in with other boys but I didn't really fit in with girls because this was also this time of very gender segregated play. Like boys weren't supposed to play with girls. And if you were interested in girly things, then, you know, you weren't a, a real boy or you were gay or queer or something else. And so it was kind of hard if you didn't fit into those kind of traditional gender roles at that point in time. And I think what we've seen is that over time, things have changed a lot of those ideas of what it means to be a boy or a man or to be masculine have changed, but they haven't changed the same way everywhere. And mm. I think we're living in this really interesting time where you've got certain pockets of the country and certain parts of the world where, you know, there isn't that strict adherence to traditional gender roles anymore. But in other parts, there seems to be this tightening of those traditional gender roles and people are going back to them and embracing them even more. So when you want to talk about, you know, how have norms around masculinity changed well i think they've changed in two different directions because we just live in this very polarized society and polarized world where some people are really clinging to those traditional ideas and beliefs other people are trying to challenge them and expand them and so you know depending on where you live the norms might be very different do you feel like that it's affected the sexual fantasies in terms of like do you think that they have shifted because of the different like societal expectations on gender. So then it's like making people fantasize about different things. Like, have you noticed like a trend as like society gets more open in some areas or more reverting back, like clinging more to norms and others that it's had a shift in what people are fantasizing about? You know, our fantasies 
as I like to describe them, they're a biopsychosocial phenomenon. And there's, Ooh. you know, these biological and evolutionary factors that might play a role in terms of what we're turned on by. But then we've got our own unique psychology based on our lived experience and things that we've learned. And then we've got the cultural and societal factors, you know, the environment that we live in. And all of these things shape our fantasies. And so if you want to talk about something like masculinity and femininity and pressure to adhere to a particular gender role, I think that falls more in the cultural and societal side of things. And it does have an impact. And one of the ways I see it coming out in my research is that the more there's this pressure on you to act a certain way because of the way your gender is perceived by others, the more you fantasize about breaking free of that. So mm. as one example, if you look at you know cisgender, heterosexual men and women, in their fantasies, the women are often fantasizing about being more dominant than they are in reality. And the men are fantasizing about being more submissive than they are. So in interesting. You know, it's that, that part of it is the taboo. It's wanting to do what we're not supposed to do or what society tells us we're not supposed to do. But it's also just, we often feel very constrained in terms of what we can do with our sexuality. And so in our fantasies, we're often breaking free and engaging in sexual self-exploration and wondering, well, what would it be like if I wasn't the one who was initiating sex all the time and my partner was doing it? Or what if there was just this different power dynamic? And that can be very appealing and tantalizing to people. I think one thing that probably is very scary or I would feel would be scary would be, it's like you have to be communication, obviously so important. And then feeling comfortable with yourself because there's like, hey, if I switch up how I'm going to be in the bedroom versus how I am outside of the bedroom, will it then undermine my role outside of the bedroom, like say you're the traditional cis, you know, dad and you're like, you know, we're talking real stereotypical gender roles, but then your fantasy is you're like, I want to be a little princess and I want my toes painted and I want, you know, I want you to like, you know, finger me in the butt and stroke my face. Like I want to sit in your lap and have you finger me in the butt while you stroke my face and say, I'm, I'm a good girl or whatever then there would be that fear of, okay, but then when I get out of here, is it going to undermine me saying, make me a steak, which no one should do anyway. I'm just to paint the picture. It's like, I wonder if people feel that then it would, it would just kind of under change how someone would see them and challenge it if they then were able to, I mean, I think the ultimate display of masculinity or something would actually be being comfortable, comfortable to explore your sexuality and all of it. Like that would be the ultimate, but I would think that that would be a fear. It absolutely is. I think a big part of why we don't share our fantasies or enact certain types of fantasies is that we're worried about how if we do this thing, how that's going to change the way our partner or other totally. people might see us. And so we hold back. And you know, this is going to sound like a weird callback reference, but safe space, you know, there's this one scene for whatever reason I can remember from the Sopranos and it's like a total throwaway scene. Nobody else probably paid any attention to it, but I remember Tony Soprano and I don't remember if it was a conversation between him and his wife or between him and his therapist, but he was saying how he doesn't want oral sex from his wife because like that's dirty and he doesn't want to see her doing that because if she did that, then he would see her as like a whore or something like that. And so he could only have oral sex when it was delivered by a sex worker. 
because he had this vision of his wife. You know, it's sort of that Madonna whore complex thing, right? Where he wanted to put his wife on a pedestal. And if she were to engage in oral sex, which is a pretty tame thing by most regards, um, you know, that that would totally change his conception of her. And so if you think about how some people just kind of might have that hang up around just something like oral sex, just imagine if you're getting into like kinky fantasies or power play or other things like that. We're worried about how that's going to change the way other people might see us or how we see our partner. And so, yeah, we just, we attach way too much importance to all that stuff. Just, you know, have fun in the bedroom. That doesn't have to change who you are or how other people see you in daily life. I think, I wonder if it is almost like a, do you find that it makes it, is it more of a nod through your research towards being in open relationships? Because like, how could one other person, it seems like it'd be very rare for one other person to be able to like match all the plethora of sexual fantasies that someone has. But then at the same time, it's like, you know, I know I like I know for me, like I wouldn't my girlfriend and I will fantasize a lot about like, you know, group sex or shared sexual things, or it'll be like her getting like gang banged or like, you know, you're you exist to get fucked or whatever it is. But then at the same time, time than if she actually was with someone else I like we're going to Amsterdam she wants to go to a sex party and I'm like I don't want to go to a sex party what if someone what if someone says hi to you or what if then but then the second we're having sex it's like you know I'm like yeah you little whore but then it's like I would never I would be like oh my god like that person said you're pretty you know I not that that's a too extreme an example then I'd be like of course you know but I the idea of like an open relationship seems like it would fall more in line with because how could one person it seems like a tall order to match all of, be that dynamic to match all of someone's fantasies. It is. And that's actually part of the reason why some people are drawn to having consensually non-monogamous or open right. relationships. And I've seen that in my own research. I've done a lot of research on this particular topic. And I'm thinking of one study I did on people who had friends with benefits. And I found that there were some people where they had a primary romantic partner or relationship and they were very vanilla sexually with that partner, but mm-hmm. they had a friend with benefits with whom they were very kinky. And so they were getting, they were being a very different sexual person with each partner. And it's exactly what you're saying. It's hard to be able to explore all those different facets of the self with just one person. And I think it's especially hard in long-term monogamous relationships where maybe you for 5, 10, 15, 20 years have only ever had one sexual role and then you want to try something different, how do you do that? And, uh, you know, because it changes everything about your sexual dynamic. And so for some people, they pursue non-monogamy because it's just easier to introduce that side of yourself or explore it with a new partner than bring it into the existing relationship. That doesn't mean that the sex you have with your longer term partner is less good or not as meaningful or anything like that. It's just a different kind of sex. Absolutely. And then also it's like, then when you factor in, we're all trying to get through our day, everybody's busy, they've got work, they got to do load the dishwasher, maybe they don't have a dishwasher, all these things. And it's like, and then like, like that would be such a luxury to then get to be like, okay, and then I got to find like the different sexual partners to match my it's like, I got to figure out who's going to mow the lawn this weekend. You know what I mean? It's a well, lot of stuff. <laughs> Yeah. And non-monogamy brings up its own interesting set of complications. Like I find it problematic how a lot of people talk about monogamy and non-monogamy and some people just trash one or the other and say that one is the ideal and that everybody should strive for it. And it's like, you know, the reality is every relationship type has its own unique benefits and its own unique drawbacks. And you got to figure out what's right for you and what are the 
complications you're willing to accept. And when you practice non-monogamy, there are things that might pop up like jealousy and insecurity or just time management. You know, I think there's also an interesting intersection between ADHD and consensual non-monogamy where in the research we see that people with ADD are more into the idea of having multiple partners, but they have time management issues. And so it might make it harder to manage <laughs> multiple relationships. They're double booking and then they're like saying one thing. I have had that actually when I'd be like single and dating. I love sexting and I would be like sexting different people, which also a double challenge. I'm also dyslexic. So I'm like spell checking it. I'm like Googling words, like what, but I would forget like whose sexual fantasy lined up with what, or like what scenario I had been sexting with one person. And I remember one time like texting someone one thing and it completely didn't go with what we had been sexting because it was for someone else. And then I had to like do a hard, I felt like I was on a roller coaster then trying to just <laughs> do all my sexting. So I can't even imagine if it was in person. So that's a good, that's <laughs> That's a good Time point. Management. Yeah, it's it's hard when you're juggling multiple relationships at once. What's your most feminine trait that you like about yourself? I don't know. I mean, I guess if I'm thinking about it, I think I've always been kind of an androgynous person where mm. I've never had very strict adherence to a traditional male gender role. And I think in part that led me to kind of view gender as kind of this performative thing. And so for me, I don't like personally feel a strong sense of gender or gender identity. Like gender is just more of a performative thing that I do because it was an adaptive thing for me to do when I was younger because I was ostracized for the way that other people perceived me. And so I would kind of shift back and forth in different contexts from maybe being a little bit more masculine to being a little more feminine or being somewhere in between. And so I'm amorphous, I guess, when it comes to gender. I relate to that 100%. And I always just kind of use it as a talking point. And then I, in the past couple of years, it's so wonderful that it's been brought to the forefront more where people are saying, I identify this way and I'm using these pronouns. But then to me, it's been giving me an identity crisis because I'm like, I'm just trying to keep it moving. I'm trying to make it in show business. And people are like, what does that have to do, you know, when I ask you your gender identity? And I'm like, I just, I, I don't care. Whatever makes it easiest and then I don't, am I being a people pleaser because I don't want to inconvenience someone if I did say I'd want to switch pronouns, but I'm like, I don't even, wouldn't even know if I would want to do that. But then sexually, my girlfriend and I always role play where I'll use male pronouns, but I would, I have no desire to incorporate that outside of my, to me, I associate that with a sexual thing. So I wouldn't, you know, cause my, my therapist was like, oh, do you want me to use male pronouns with you? And then I, all of a sudden I found myself sexually attracted to her. So I'm like, it's a very, it's, you know, it, it, I, I really relate to that. I, I think I wear it like very loosely. And then so now when someone's like, what are your pronouns? I'm like, Jesus Christ with this shit. Can we, oh my God. And then it's like, whoa, Emma, I'm just trying to, just trying to know how to introduce you. And I'm like, okay, you know, whatever. It gives me a breakdown. Yeah. You know, we live in this interesting time in a lot of ways. And one is that we have these more expansive ideas of gender. And you would think that in living in this time of expansive gender that you could really be yourself in different situations. I'm more stressed out than ever about it. But there's also Not all to this make it about me. pressure to just, you know, put yourself in a box so that and other to know. easily understand you. And I, I relate to that. Like, I, I, I don't know when people ask me these questions because gender is just kind of like, for me, a feeling that can vary from context to context. Totally. Like, and I was think I was like, when did everyone get so freaking confident in their gender? And I said that to a straight uh, cis female friend of mine. And she kind of was like, well, she was like, 
you know, for most people, she was like, that maybe is you have more of a, uh, issue. she said it nicely, but more of a conflict with it than most, because she was like, that isn't something that stresses me out. And I'm like, I know, but I see all these, like, people that are maybe less androgynous than me, that are changing this and changing that, and then I'm, everyone's looking at me like, well, like, what's your situation? Like, you've obviously got something going on. Look at you. And I'm like, I just... I just want to go to the cheesecake factory. Like, <laughs> it's just, it's a whole thing. It is a whole thing. Yeah, it's it, it's a complicated world to navigate with regard to sexuality. It and is. Gender, and you have all these matters of identity. And, you know, the hard thing for me is always whenever anybody asks me about any aspect of my identity, it's, okay, if I were to say this, what is it that I'm signing up for? You know, so if that's Ooh. my identity, what are all the other things that they're then going to perceive and associate with me if I say this versus that? And that's where it kind of becomes a little complicated, at least for me. I think about that all the time because I'll be like, I know the way I look. I'm like, look, I'm not going to, you know, it's okay if you eat gluten around me, like whatever. Like it's, I think about that all the time. And then it's also like, but I, it's a it's an interesting thing if you tend to be neurotic too. Like, you know, it's, it, it, I spent some time in the South over COVID and I was, didn't want people thinking I was a vegetarian because of how I look. Cause in my mind, I thought then they would think I was like too, too far one way, even though I wish I could be a vegetarian and God, I love vegetarians. I'm insane. Like if I would order something that was vegetarian at a restaurant, I'd be like, oh, I ate meat earlier. And I would only do that in the South because of how I look. So there gets to be a real complex web of neuroses about self-perception in there. Yep, you know, your doctor, social psychologist here. I get it all. You know, get it. it. Makes sense. And I know the takeaway, I one thing I've worked on is like, you know what? I think this means I need to do more things for other people because maybe I'm thinking about myself a little too much if I'm, you know, ruminating about what I'm ordering at a 7-Eleven in the South. <laughs> okay, now we have a segment called Why to Men. Dear Emma and Man, my boyfriend and I have been seeing each other for almost a year, officially dating for seven months. On our first date, he had been very open about his wants when it comes to sex, which is ideally for him twice a day. I've obliged on this from the very beginning, which I blame on my people-pleasing personality. Now that we've known each other for a while, I'm more comfortable saying no to sex when he initiates, usually incredibly late at night, I'm trying to sleep, and high as a kite. However, whenever I say no to his advances, he gets upset and takes it as a harsh rejection. This poor attitude from him then leads me to feeling guilty, just giving in and having sex. My question for you is, how can I effectively maintain my boundaries and say no to sex in a way that he will react in a, to in a more positive way? Sincerely, once guilty, now gagging. Thank you so much for asking that question. I, I appreciate you sending that one in. You know, it's a great question. And establishing your boundaries is something a lot of people struggle with in relationships. So you're not alone in worrying about this. Now, I have a couple of thoughts here. One is that, you know, the reader is asking, how can I say this in a way that my partner is going to respond more positively to? And something you have to recognize is that no matter how you say it, it's possible your partner might not respond positively to it because they might just be an asshole, right? And it might just be all about them and they might act this way with any partner in any situation. And so, you know, that's something to keep in mind is that if you try different things, you try asserting your boundaries and your partner is not responsive to it in any context and there's no give and take and it's always about them and their needs, that's a problem, and that's a sign that you might need to reevaluate whether you should even be in this relationship, and is this even a healthy dynamic? 
Now that said, you know, it's possible your partner is amenable to, you know, working mutual boundaries into the relationship. And so you might sit back and have this conversation at a time when it hasn't just come after a request for sex, right? So take it out of the bedroom when you have this conversation, because in that moment where somebody initiates sex, they're often feeling very vulnerable. And that's why I think so many people take it so personally when their partner says no to a request for sex. It's because they think that you're saying they're not attractive or you don't like the sex that you're having. And so, you know, there's often like an attachment anxiety component that goes along with those negative reactions that might be driving it. And it can be really hard to have a productive conversation in that moment. So take the conversation out of the bedroom and you can start by saying, you know, I enjoy the sex that we're having and I'm attracted to you and I want us to have a happy, healthy sex life, but I don't always want sex at the times that you do. And I don't want you to take it personally. It's just for whatever reason, sometimes I'm not into sex. And if you wanted to, you could list various reasons. You know, sometimes you're just too tired or, uh, you know, maybe you're just too stressed and can't I'm so, or in this case, I am so high right now. (laughs) I don't know what's going on. You know, so feel free to, to mention those reasons and then see how they react and say, you know, in those situations where I'm not into sex, is it okay if we just cuddle instead or we schedule a time to do it later or that we engage in a different activity. Like maybe in those moments, I'm not down for penetrative intercourse, but I might be down for oral sex or just kissing or or something else, right? So is there an alternative that could work in those situations that's something that's going to align with both of your wants and needs in that moment? So you know, broach the situation outside of the bedroom, assert your boundaries, and then come up with some kind of creative solution that's going to work for both of you. And if they're not responsive to that, again, reevaluate that relationship. That's a gr- I'm so glad that we brought this question to you because I think I was really, I really clinged on to the word I've obliged. And then some, there were some words that like stuck out to me that I think made me feel like, whoa, like, what the hell? Like, who, you know, who is this person to be asking for, you know, twice a day? And, you know, it's like, I, oh, my initial reaction from this was like, re- first really sit with yourself about like, what, what do you want? So then you can present that to your partner. But I, I love that way of approaching it and t- talking about it outside the bedroom, too, and saying, you know, like, you know, these are the reasons why and it has nothing to do with anything else and then really be sensitive to the fact that if someone you know someone that they it is imperative that they respect that maybe one creative solution could be there's these um these pocket like you know the flat i don't know why they always have a flashlight attached to them the fleshlights you know those or like the thing like maybe you could um maybe he could get one of those and then you could like record like a audio of you like moaning or something and tell him to put some headphones on and like jerk off quietly in the corner or something like that just just spitballing over here it's it's like the build a bear thing where you know you you could record a message (laughs) and put it inside your bear and squeeze it and then it would have your partner's voice you know you just need a fleshlight equivalent of the build a bear just give him a get really kinky and just give him a freaking build a bear and say do your worst to it. Put a I want, inside the bear. <laughs> I want this bear's mouth to be blown out when I wake up. And he's like, What are you smoking now? But I also relate to being people pleasing in the sense of I've done that. I was thinking recently about like when you start dating I have a friend who's newly single and he's talking about his 
dating life. And, you know, now we're in our late 30s. And I remember we've been friends for a long time talking about, you know, when you first start dating someone, it's like you're staying up all night having sex. And I remember, you know, that I'm like, oh, God, like, I wouldn't even know how to incorporate that now into my nighttime routine. (laughs) You know, I need to have my my specific blue light glasses on like this needs to happen. The pillow needs to be between my knees. Like it's like. I'm not talking about with sex. I'm talking about getting ready to go to sleep. Like, it's like, so when you stay up all night pretending like, yeah, I can just do this and like get by in two or three hours of sleep. Like in the beginning of a relationship, we do that. But then I totally understand. Or like for me, like if if it is really late or I'm stressed about something now, I'll be like, oh, I can't have sex under these conditions. You know, it's so that that is a very relatable thing to setting one president in the beginning and then kind of hoping that. They understand, hey, it's the beginning of the relationship. We're gonna have to, we're gonna have to schedule this in as we move along. And you know, I think it's important for people to recognize when they get into a relationship with someone that you might establish sexual compatibility at the beginning. And oftentimes mm. we think like set it and forget it, and you know, if you're compatible, you're compatible, and that's that. But sexual compatibility is not something that you establish. It's something that you maintain. And so, you know, what worked for you early on in the relationship sexually might not work for you next year or in five years or 10 years because we evolve and change as sexual beings. And so you have to evolve and grow together sexually or it's just not going to work. And, you know, that's the other thing that's, you know, kind of interesting about that question is it started out with sex twice a day, every day, and it was fine, but now it's not that's normal that like your sexual frequency and your level of interest in sex, how often you want it, what you want to do, these things change. And so, you know, as you change, you need to communicate those boundaries and you don't want to be in a situation where, you know, what this reader described is what we would call unmitigated sexual communion, where it's basically Mm. like you are willing to meet your own partner's needs and put their needs ahead of yours all the time. And they're not doing the same for you in return. Like that's an unbalanced relationship. It doesn't work. Relationships work best when there's give and take and there's sort of this mutual willingness to sacrifice and put your partner's needs ahead of your own. And that includes recognizing that sometimes your partner's need is to not have sex right now. And to know that you're worth it to be with someone who also wants not, I'm not saying this person isn't, but I'm just in general, you are worth it to have someone that wants to also make sacrifices for you. Cause there's so, I was in quite a few relationships where I was just doing everything for the person out of fear that if I ever had something that I said that I needed, that they wouldn't want to be with me. And also it's not even in my case, wasn't even fair to the other person because it's not even giving them a chance to show if they would show up like that. Yep. You're worth it. You're worth it. Okay, now we have a segment called Ask Justin Anything. Do men enjoy foreplay? What would be the best approach when giving a man feedback about how to improve their foreplay skills without offending them? (laughs) Okay, so foreplay is something that different people might define in different ways. And I kind of wish we didn't have this distinction between sex and foreplay because, you know, a lot of the things that we considered to be foreplay are oral sex and mutual masturbation and uh, other things that are they're forms of sex too and and so when we call it foreplay it kind of like uh, assigns it this lesser importance so totally I kind of wish we didn't have that distinction but anyway and it comes in all the time where it's like oh i didn't cheat because i didn't do this like we just like jerked off in the car and you're like all right this is lines were crossed is the p- point of this yes you know and i think there's this misconception that men don't like or don't enjoy these so-called foreplay activities. And in reality, they do. You know, if you look at the research and data, men 
don't just want intercourse, like they want a variety of activities and they enjoy a lot of different things. And that includes giving their partner pleasure. So that can include providing oral sex or, you know, engaging in fingering or, you know, a variety of other activities. Now, if you want to give your partner feedback on their foreplay skills or any other thing in the bedroom, it's a delicate situation. You know, it goes back to what we were saying earlier about how, you know, if you turn down a partner's request for sex, that can feel very anxiety inducing to them. If you want to tell your partner they need to improve their sexual skills, that's going to have probably an even deeper <laughs> negative impact on them because it's going to make them feel like they're a failure in the bedroom and that, and that they're not pleasing you or that maybe you don't enjoy the sex that you're having. So you have to approach it delicately. Or if it's like, oh no, I was doing this with everyone else. Shit, yeah. they don't like my move. Yeah, don't don't bring that approach up. Don't say my other boyfriends used to. <laughs> no, not a good way to go. Um, but start with a compliment, you know, validation. Yeah, that's always the key when you're having sexual discussions. So you know, talk about what you like and enjoy. And then you can propose like, I was thinking it might be hot if we tried this. And so you can bring it up as a suggestion for something that you want to try, maybe in addition to what you're currently doing. So maybe you want them to try a different oral sex technique. Or maybe you can say, you know, I saw this in porn, or I read this in an erotic novel or something. And I just thought it might be interesting to try. And can we try this out the next time we do it? I think I might be really into it. And I think you might enjoy it too. And so if you can sort of pitch it or frame it in that way, where it's this mutual collaborative thing, as opposed to criticism, that's going to work much better. If you just go in with a critical approach, you're going to shut that shit down right away. I love that. And would you say it's better to bring this up outside of the set? Like, should you do it like outside of the bedroom so it's not happening in real time? Or when would you say the best timing is around that? I think oftentimes it works best outside of the bedroom, but in a state where you're still sexually aroused. So it can be maybe you just watched a movie where there was this really erotic scene or, you know, you're watching some Netflix or other show that's that's hot. And, you know, you can talk about like this sex scene and you're both in this heightened state of arousal and that makes it easier to have these conversations because if you just bring it up randomly over the breakfast table or something mm. like that you know then it just seems weird and out of the blue and if people aren't in that kind of sexual or erotic state of mind sometimes it can be really hard for them to kind of engage with the conversation um you know there's this interesting thing that happens where when we're sexually aroused our disgust response goes down and so it becomes easier to talk about sex and trying new things, including things that we might otherwise consider to be gross or disgusting. Because when you're turned on, it's like, ooh, yeah, like I'm <laughs> kind of okay to, to talk about that or explore it. You know, I think this concept becomes very relatable if you think about somebody watching porn while they're masturbating. You know, as soon as they orgasm, so many people are just quick to like, I got to close that laptop lid or I got to get out of this browser window because I, I just, I don't want to see the porn anymore because it's- Have you been spying on me? <laughs> Have you been spying on me? Yes. The, I go, what the, I got to go do some community, community service. The fuck am I, what did I just do sometimes? I go, God damn. Because it gets normal. weird out there on the internet. It does. That, and that doesn't mean there's anything wrong with you or your fantasies or what you're watching, but there's that interesting psychological thing that happens when we're masturbating or engaged in sexual activity. When you're in that heightened state of arousal, it's just, you're, you're in the, kind of this altered mental state. And so you just become more open to, oh, what might that be like? 
there's this couple I love watching have sex. I haven't watched them have sex in forever. And, you know, they post on this amateur site. And I don't know. I just love the way they talk to each other. And it's fun. And they're both very, like, into dirty talk. But it's, like, the strangest thing. Because then after I'll get off from it, I'll be, like, I've watched them enough now that, like, I, like, <laughs> recognize parts of their house. Or, like, at one point they got a new camera. And I was like, ah, good for them. They're really updating. They're really investing in this. And, but then it's, like, after I watch it or get off, then I'll be like, oh, my God. Like, this is so weird. Like, I feel like I not know these people in any way now. But I'm like, what am I doing? Who are they? Like, what is, you know, it, all of a sudden I'm like, why I need to do my taxes or whatever it is. And I just you know, feel weird. <laughs> I've never heard of anyone doing their taxes right after coming, but hey, you know, well, <laughs> different things work for different people. Big jumps. We often hear about women feeling insecure if their boyfriend doesn't post photos of them on Instagram or if they follow lots of attractive women. What would you say is a healthy use of social media when it comes to relationships? And is it okay for someone to ask their partner to change their social media habits? Oh, gosh. <laughs> you know, so this is part of the modern landscape of relationships that I think we're still grappling with. You know, back when I was in graduate school, you know, social media was very much in its infancy and it wasn't something people were talking about. And I remember reading some research on what we called couple markers. And so mm. for people in relationships, when they had more of these couple markers around their home, which would be things like shared photos of them together that they put out, or they put that in their office or something like that, that this was linked to greater relationship satisfaction, right? Because you have more of these reminders of your relationship around, and you're also projecting that kind of image to the world. So in this era of social media, you know, a couple markers are now like, what is your profile picture and what's posted on your wall? And so it's very easy for people to feel insecure if their partner is not posting things about them because they might be projecting to the world that they're single because sometimes it's hard to figure out or discern, you know, is somebody in a relationship or not? You know, personally, I also find it confusing sometimes when people have couple photos, especially if it's like a gay couple and then they send me a friend request on Facebook and I don't know either of them. I'm like, I, I don't know which one of you sent me this friend request. Mm. <laughs> you have a couple photo and all of your photos on your page are of the both of you. And so it's like, so, so right. who's Dan? Yeah, totally. Yeah. Or even on dating apps, people will do that sometimes. So it'll be like a group. I was looking at someone's dating profile the other day because they were like, hey, can you give me some notes in it? And I was like, these pictures are so fun. But I would think like make it very clear who you are in it. Yeah. I, so I think it can actually go too far when everything is about you and your partner and then it just, yeah. So I, I think there's like a healthy balance and this is true on social media and just in everyday life of having some individuality and also, you know, having that intimacy and connection with your partner. So if you're concerned about your partner's lack of posts about you, you know, that's a case for be transparent, have a conversation about this. And, you know, you can say what your concerns and anxieties are, and it might be that there's an innocuous explanation. Like, maybe they just didn't think about this before, or, or it wasn't something that ever crossed their mind, and they might have other ways of expressing and showing their love and commitment to you, right? Because different people show love in very, very different ways. And you might want them to do it publicly on social media, but they think that love is something that you do in private and it's the gifts or other things that you buy for your partner or do for them or the things that you say to them. So it might just be sort of a mismatch in 
what are your needs and how do you want love communicated and how are they expressing it? And so you might be able to find a healthy balance, but if you're going to become your partner's social media director, like mm. I don't think that's healthy. Like if you're going to censor what they can post and tell them how often they need to post about you, like that's kind of controlling behavior. Sure. You might need to step back and say, well, what is it about me that makes me think that I need to control my partner's social media presence in this way? So, you know, there's a, the way to start, just have the conversation, express your concerns, talk about it, but don't get into that controlling mode of becoming their social media manager. And also, yeah, maybe asking, like, what does this mean to you? Like, when you post, because it might mean, I know for me, a lot of times, like, when I would think of, say something, this is a big example, of, but like with marriage, when people, I would talk with people about marriage, sometimes it would be, we would have like very, very different thoughts of it. And then I started reframing it like, well, what does marriage, and I'm not even talking about in the context of me marrying someone, but just in general, like, what does marriage mean to you? And then a lot of times we would have very different interpretations of it based on what we saw our parents had. So to me, my parents had a very complicated, drawn out divorce. So in my past, marriage to me meant chaos, drama, lies. So then when people would be like, oh my God, I didn't think of it like that. Or they'd say, I wonder why my partner doesn't want to get married. I said, well, see what marriage means to them. So it's a similar, made me think of this and what does the social media posting mean to them? Like my, they might say, you know, I don't, I don't share anything. Like, look at my thing. It's all toaster strudels. And that, so that's why I just am obsessed with toaster strudels. Or then, but there is, like, I've got this um, cousin of mine who's got kids and a wife and I was on his social media the other day and I go, what the fuck? Not one post. And I felt myself judging a little bit because I said, not one? You know, there's like, if you look at the picture of it, it's like, this looks like a single person's profile. So what are we doing here? Yeah. But I also don't know what it means to men. They might say, hey, I, that's my private life that I keep private. Okay, got it. And, you know, you also have to recognize people use social media for different right. reasons. And they might use different accounts for different reasons. And it, it might be a way that they're connecting with their buddies or, or friends um, as opposed to, you know, putting themselves out there looking for alternative relationships or cheating. You know, I think there's often this presumption that if your partner's on social media, that their exes are going to be reaching out to them and their, you know, other people are going to be flirting with them. And so that becomes the source of anxiety. And, you know, it kind of makes sense in a way because so much of infidelity has moved into the online world. It's become easier to facilitate those kinds of connections. But we need to find ways to have healthy relationships with, with social media and our online presence and lives. And, you know, that's another case where we have to be able to draw boundaries. And it, it's hard to do because people can just pop into your DMs and your inbox at any time. What advice would you give someone just out of a breakup that's new to online dating? <laughs> you know, I got a similar question to this the other day. Somebody who had exited a multi-decade relationship. And wow. so they hadn't been dating for a really long time. And the dating world today is very different than it was in the past. And so I don't know anything about the reader who sent in that question and, you know, did they have prior experience with online dating before, or is it totally new to them? Because the advice is going to be a little bit different. Because if you've never tried online dating before, um, a little bit of a reality check, I think, is in order. Recognize that you know it's it, it, it can be a brutal world 
where there's a lot of rejection. You know, the beauty of online dating is that it can connect you with a lot of potential people that you would never otherwise meet in real life. And so we make more of these connections, but we also experience way more rejection than we do when we're trying to meet people in person, say at a bar or nightclub or a social activity. So you have to be prepared for a certain amount of rejection and it doesn't say anything negative about you if you're getting rejected sometimes or a lot of the time, because it happens to everybody who engages in online dating, except for like this very small percentage of people who are just extraordinarily physically attractive that everybody wants, right? Totally, and probably lying or who fucking knows, yes. Yeah. So recognize rejection as part of it. Um, do some research on the different platforms that are out there because they all offer something different. Some of them cater more to creating safe spaces for people to interact and, you know, will filter out like unwanted contact, or, like unsolicited dick pics. Other places, it's a wild, wild west. You never know what you're going to receive when you click on a message, right? So research the platforms and, you know, take it slow. Like you don't necessarily need to go for the first connection that pops up or the first match that you have um, and, and recognize, you know, it might take several failed matches in order for something to work out. You know, online dating is not a quick fix for getting into a new relationship. And I think oftentimes when we're exiting one relationship, we often want to get into another one as quickly as possible, but sometimes that's a really bad idea. Take your time. It's okay to be single, be alone for a little while, figure out what it is that you really want now. Do you feel like sometimes it, when people meet on like a meet and the talking point, the meeting point is over a certain sexual fantasy and you lead with like a similar sexual interest, do you think that it can, because I, I wonder sometimes if you're, someone would get like really, if you then get trapped into like say, say like I was like, I have to have someone like sexually, I need them to be like eating pie and like rubbing their feet you know, would then, and then you have like, say you, you have like amazing sexual chemistry with someone about one thing. Do you think it then, because sometimes I've found for me to like cloud me getting to know them in other areas and then like six months go by and you're like, oh my God, like we don't have anything in common, but you have an amazing sexual connection. And over the internet that can be, you can establish a sexual connection very quick, but then you're like, who are you? Like, you know, I think that that can, do you think that that can be like almost a hindrance sometimes? I mean, I guess the way I'm thinking about this is that there are some people out there who would be fantastic sexual partners for mm. me, but they would be terrible relationship partners. Some people who would be amazing relationship partners, but terrible sex partners. And then there's somewhere in the middle where they'd be an amazing sexual and relationship partner, right? And right. so it's sort of like, how do you find that right blend of where you've got the eroticism, but you also have the connection that you need to sustain an actual relationship. And I think oftentimes, you know, we're often looking for one thing or the other. I actually hear this from people all the time, like where, you know, they had all these great sexual relationships, but then they were like, okay, I'm ready to settle down and get married and start a family. And so I picked this person who I thought was going to be a great partner and parent, but then they find that there's no sexual connection with them. Right. And so it's like, if you're prioritizing just one over the other, like it's going to be hard to get all of your needs met. But also at the same time, if you're trying to find somebody who has it all, that's fucking hard too. <laughs> so I don't know the answer. But we're all in it together. It's not going to, it's yeah. not easy for anybody. It's not easy for anyone. 
A few episodes ago, we had a listener write in about a tricky situation that I'd love your perspective on. Okay, the scenario is she's a bisexual woman dating a straight man. He expressed that he was cool with her sexuality and even found it appealing, but one night at a bar, he got drunk and accused her of hooking up with another girl in the bathroom, something she would never do while in a monogamous relationship. Basically, our listener asked about why men love the idea of dating bisexual women, but then also use it as an excuse to accuse them of being unfaithful. Well, first, we have to talk about stereotypes of bisexual people. And one of the common ones is that there's this assumption that if you're bisexual or even pansexual, if you're just attracted to more than one sex or gender, that you're incapable of monogamy, right? Because <laughs> you're attracted to a wide range right. of people. Right. You're crazy. Yes. Yeah. Like you'll never be happy with just mm-hmm. one person because you'll always be wanting more. Like this idea of bisexuals is sexually insatiable is out there, but it's wrong, right? It's wild too because it's like there's so many, say you're attracted to just one gender think how many of that gender there are. Like, we all have so many options of things. Yeah, so, you know, there are stereotypes about bisexuals, and it doesn't just run in the direction of, like, say, heterosexual men dating bisexual women. Um, Actually, heterosexual women often are not into bisexual men because there's the stereotype that heterosexual women have where they think that the bi men are just secretly gay, right? So bisexual people, regardless of their gender, have to put up with this kind of shit because there's all these stereotypes about them. I've been with bisexual women that for some reason that's I'll connect with them best sexually, I've noticed, who they are themselves bisexual, but then will say I, I would never be with a bisexual guy. And I've always thought that was very, there's so many things that play into that. And I think it's it's very interesting. Yeah, it, so it's definitely interesting. Now, with regard to the specific question here, like why are hetero men into being with bisexual women? Well, it's because I see this in my own fantasy research that most straight guys have some lesbian fantasy, like where it's two women fawning over them. And so when men might be attracted to a bisexual woman, it's often, but not always, through this lens of, well, eventually that means we're going to have a threesome, which is the right. popular sexual fantasy. And there's it's going to be two women and they're both going to be into me and it's going to be about me. That's so interesting that that's a common sexual fantasy. And I think it's such an interesting caveat that part of the threesome is the two women are, it's, it's a very specific dynamic of the threesome. You're yes. not picturing like, you know, you're picturing a very specific set of energy going towards you. So it's more like you're the main meal and these two people are just devouring you when there's so many ways a threesome could play out. Yeah. You know, I've said this so many times, but based on my research, having a threesome is the single most common sexual fantasy, but it's the fantasy that's least likely to turn out well when people actually try it. <laughs> and I wouldn't, that doesn't surprise me at all. Cause you could say, Hey, I want to have a threesome and your girlfriend goes great. And then she brings her big butch friend, Beth Ann come in, comes in and she's like, what's up? Suck my dick. And then the guy's like, Whoa, you know what I mean? Like there's so many, like, the idea of a threesome that wouldn't even be in my top 100 sexual fantasies it just gives me social anxiety i'm like oh jesus christ like just the idea of logistics planning even yeah you know it's it's so interesting when i read through people's fantasies about having a threesome more often than not they want to be the center of attention and so that's so interesting about them but then when they have a threesome it's like well 
everybody can't be the center of attention unless you're, you're taking turns and you've negotiated and discussed this beforehand. But oftentimes people are just having a threesome that happens spontaneously. Like they were out at the bar with their partner and had too many drinks and somebody ends up coming home with them. Right. And there was no communication and it turns into a disaster because you also haven't discussed boundaries and what's even allowed in the threesome. And, so, and then what happens? It's just awkward. Yeah. And, you know, are you allowed to maintain contact with this person afterwards? And like, what are the rules of engagement and all that other stuff? And yeah, th threesomes can work out great. Like lots of people have great experiences with it, but there are lots of cases where it can go terribly wrong. I humbly think the rule, I have an idea on a, a very intrinsic thing. I feel the rules of a threesome would be the two people, the foundation of it that invite the third in you focus on the third. So they, you're inviting them over for dinner. You fucking, you need to get them some, you Uber them over, you rub their feet, you oil them up, you fucking bada bing, bada boom, everything on them, everything on them, everything on them. You Uber them home. You, you, they are, that's what I would think. But also I, that's just what I would imagine. Hey, you know, another way to approach it too is you can have just three single people having a threesome. You don't True. have to have a couple as the basis. And sometimes that works out even better when it's just three random people getting together because then you mm -hmm. have to figure out how to communicate and navigate You're that right. dynamic because then you don't have two people who already have this established dynamic. And then you don't also don't really have the jealousy and other things coming into play. So I don't know, maybe we should all be having more single threesomes. I think that probably would be the scenario where it could, the, there's the least potential for awkwardness too, because right, it's understood from the jump. Hey, how do we want to, who's, who's going to be the, what are the dynamics here? Yep. When our listener asks if then accusing them of an excuse to be unfaithful, is there a way that she, that she can then like explain to her boyfriend that, because it is just as it's hurtful if someone accuses you of hooking up with someone flippantly where you're like, oh my God, like you're discrediting all my like, why do you really think that? And you're discrediting my ability to, my commitment to our relationship. Yeah, it's hard when accusations of infidelity come up because sometimes there was no infidelity that happened. Right, you're or, like, I was pooping. Yeah, or at least it was not something that was intended to hurt your partner. So, for example, when I look at the research on how people define infidelity, like they're all over the map. Some people define their partner watching porn as being infidelity. And oh. you might, yeah, I mean, you might have just been watching porn and wanking and that was it. It didn't mean anything more to you than that. But your partner might perceive that as cheating. And so then that can turn into a whole issue. So I think it really starts with like in relationships, couples or throuples or whatever your relationship structure is like you have to define the boundaries of that relationship and determine what is cheating and what is not like what is allowed and you know that can turn into a dicey discussion because if one partner thinks that porn is cheating but the other partner likes watching porn it's sort of a sexual outlet and it's nothing more than that for them like that might be a point of contention and some people just aren't going to be compatible. But you also need to look at like, what are my reasons why I'm uncomfortable with this? Or why do I think my partner is cheating? Or why am I snooping on them to try and prove to myself that they are cheating? And is it because you've got some attachment anxiety or something else that's underlying that? And sometimes, you know, therapy is the answer to, to work on the self and like, wh where are those anxieties coming from? that are interfering with your relationship. Because if you're accusing your partner of infidelity and they haven't done anything, 
you're hurting the relationship and you're hurting the connection that you have with them. And so that might be a couple's counseling kind of situation that you want to work through. Um, and you know, if you're the partner who's being accused of infidelity and you haven't done anything that actually constitutes that, you know, I know the immediate reaction is to feel very hurt and to be very defensive, but you know, if this is the first time that it's happened, you know, maybe try to I know it's harder than it's, it's easier said than done, but engage in a little perspective taking like, why did my partner think this and what can we do to avoid this in the future? And maybe we need to have a chat about what the boundaries of our relationship are. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a tough thing for both partners in the relationship, but you need to be able to work together. This leads perfectly into bringing up this other question because I did a, an episode of a podcast called you up recently Love doing it. So much fun. And they had a, a question that they wrote in that I want to get your perspective on because I've been thinking about it since I did it because I love what the person wrote in and shared. And then I've just been thinking about my response to it. I would love to get your thoughts on this. Okay. So the listener was a woman who had sex with a man and they had been on a few dates and she she noted she felt like he was like moving it you know, making it, uh, like, really wanting to meet up, and they're having conversations. It was not just sex. Like, they're going on dates. Like, information is being exchanged. So after she had sex, so they've had sex, and after that, it was implied that it was kind of, like, pretty soon after that. Like, they're still in bed. Afterwards, he informed her that he's queer and has previously had male partners. She felt weird about the fact that he hadn't told her that before they had sex, but was also worried that it was homophobic of her to feel that way. What do you make of the situation? Gosh, you know, that goes back to what we were talking about earlier about, you know, stereotypes of bisexual men. And, you know, lots of women are uncomfortable with the idea of their partner having, male partner having been with a man before or just having attraction to other men. Um, you know, part of it is that concern about, like, are they secretly gay and are they really into me or not? So, you know, there can be a little bit of that anxiety element. Um, for some, there's also the personal health risk concern, you know, but that stems from other stereotypes where sure. you know, a man who has sex with men, then you must have HIV and, uh, you know, that they're perceived as engaging in risky sexual behavior. But, you know, if they were using condoms and were on prep, you know, the risk of HIV transmission of is course. basically zero, right? And so, a friend of mine pointed out there, like, we don't ask, you know, the sexual, we're not getting the resume of everybody we go into bed with. And then that would be insane, too, because someone could have only been with you know, you could be a heterosexual that's like pulling up to the gas station and getting put in your, who fucking knows what you're doing. Yeah. So it's like, it's just, we have no idea. Yeah. I mean, a lot of things happen at the gas station. So, um, but you know, I think the, the thing there is to ask yourself, why am I anxious about this? Like, why am I concerned that my male partner previously had sex with another man? Like, what are the feelings that come up for me there? That, that's kind of the starting point for this. Like, where is this even coming from in the first place? Um, and it might be related to those stereotypes that we've discussed. It might be related more to some attachment anxiety or something else. Like maybe, for example, they had a boyfriend in high school who um, dumped them and then later came out as gay. And so, you know, they're worried about something like that. There, there could be all kinds of things going on here, but it's not fair to make these you know, judgments and assumptions of other people about their sexual history. And I think we just, in general, place way too much importance on this. Like, the question, what's your number? Like, 
why are you asking that? Why do you care mm-hmm. how many people or who your partner has slept with previously? And having those discussions like usually doesn't turn out well. There are some people where it can become this erotic thing and it's almost kind of like sharing fantasies where you know they're talking about these hot past sexual experiences. Not everyone can do it in that way that's arousing because it often brings up anxiety because going back to what we discussed in the beginning, we engage in these social comparisons. And so we're trying to like measure up or compare our sex life to our partners. And we feel it's easy to feel inadequate or inferior in some way. Now, I was struck by the, just for me, the first thing ping I got from this was the timing of it, that he brought it up after they had had sex, but in, you know, then going into that, it's like, you know, what is someone's responsibility to disclose their sexuality first? And I think, you know, then there's also like a safety thing, maybe, you know, what is someone's business to know who someone has been with before, especially after a couple dates, I would, you know, if information was shared on those dates, and it's like, you're going out to dinner, I would have been taken back, like, oh, how did this not come up? But also maybe it's like, we're also presenting the version of ourselves that we feel would be like the most compatible with the person to get to know them more. So what what is the responsibility or what's one of the best practices for disclosing your sexuality, not necessarily who you've been with before, but best practices for disclose, disclosing your sexuality when you are dating? And then also, do you think there is anything with the timing of him bringing it up right after they had sex? Well, it, it is interesting to bring it up like right after you've had sex. Like, why? <laughs> I right. mean, I, I, I don't know what the reasoning there is for that. But when it comes to like sexual disclosures, I think the way to think about it is that it's on a need to know kind of basis. Like, you don't have to come out and share your entire sexual history with someone before you have sex with them, right? Um, you don't always have to share every detail of every encounter that you've ever had, right? So in terms of like need to know, something your partner needs to know before you have sex with them would be your STI status. And so if you have an infection that they could potentially contract through sexual activity with you, that's something that they need to know. Need to know. Now, if it's something like your sexuality, and let's say you are bisexual, but you're mostly interested in women and the person that you're seeing is is a woman, do they need to know that you also have attraction to men? Um, well, it depends. Like, do you have plans to act on your attraction to men in the future? Uh, how strong is that attraction? And also, if your partner were to reject you or would judge you for having attraction to men, would that be a deal breaker for you? Like, if so, like, these are things where, yeah, they need to know, and they need to know sooner rather than later. Or if you have a kink or a fetish, and it's really important to you, you know, I've seen this happen many times where people will get married to someone, and then like a decade or 20 years into the relationship, like their cross-dressing kink comes out. And it's like, and it becomes this shock because now it's this secret that was held for decades. Right. And like, what else have you been able to keep yeah. from me or whatever? Yeah. And it shatters the relationship sometimes. So, you know, if it's a need to know thing, like if it's really important to you and if being with somebody who wasn't accepting of that would end the relationship, get it out sooner rather than later. So that's like framing it like it's for the person to disclose it's in like the important, the person who would be sharing the sexuality in the need to know category of, I need to know whether or not this person will be okay with this. And then for the person who is on the other end of it, I guess 
it's like if that is something you need to know, I guess then it's on you to ask before you go into it. Say, you know, I'm just curious, like, I mean, queer people ask each other that on dates all the time. It's a, the dance of, so are you, like, are you gay or bi? I would always go, oh, I could care less. How do you identify? What are you, gay, bisexual, whatever, whatever. And then, you know, whatever I say, oh, great. Best of the bunch or whatever the fuck. But it's like, so then if the person who is on the other end of it, it's like, I guess the responsibility, if that they have to gauge how important that is to them, why it's that important to them. And this, when this person wrote in, they did such a good job of being like, I'm really concerned with the lens that I am viewing this through could be problematic. So I want to make sure it's not that. And I ran it by a couple other two people that I really trust were like, it is not the responsibility of the person to disclose their sexuality to the person. And that made me rethink because initially I was like, you know, I think the more information, the better. But I don't know. I, I might actually I feel like I'm kind of changing my stance on that, that it. I don't know if I would be saying that if it didn't have to do specifically with a man being bisexual because I don't know if I would have held that same standard to if it was a bisexual woman. And I want to, like, look at that and not perpetuate these things we have around male sexuality, which is very rigid and not good for anybody. Yeah. So, I mean, if there's, like, a legitimate health concern issue for either partner, like, these sure. are things to discuss. When it, be, when it comes to you know, more psychological issues and matters of attraction and identity and so forth, you know, it's, it's a need to know basis. Like, is this something, you know, if you're dating somebody else, you would really need to know that about that right. other person. So it's then in that case, it's on the, per it's on you to be like, Hey, figure yeah. out the priority this is you and then ask it on the date. But also recognize that if this is really important to you and you ask it, you might turn somebody else off just by totally. asking that because it might feel really invasive, you know, and that's the thing about these conversations and like, should you say all of these things right away. Well, you know, I'm a social psychologist. I study relationships and I know that the way relationships work best in terms of how we develop and generate trust and intimacy Please. is that you've got this mutual reciprocal self-disclosure where mm. it goes slow and over time you're sharing things about yourself. And as that happens, the trust and the intimacy builds and you can go deeper. Now, if you start by having like one-sided disclosure where one person comes out <laughs> on auto dump and is just like- Hello, social you, media, totally. Yes, and they're just giving you detail after detail about their sex life and attractions and fantasies, it can be way too much. And that can be a huge turnoff, right? So that's that's the risk of like over-disclosing all of this is that it just feels like too much too soon. And I think I can understand how someone would want to, would get into that frame after they've been dating a long time. And there's a comedian named Casey James Lango, and I'm going to paraphrase a joke that he did years ago on his Comedy Central Half Hour, but it's like, you know some how long someone's been on the dating apps, because originally it's like, starts out very vague. Like, I just want someone to walk on the beach with me. And it's like, but you know, once you get, after you've been on them for a little while, it's like, the girl's like, okay, no Leos, no Capricorns, no one named David, no one lived, lives with their mother, no one that was a math major. It just starts getting, so I could see how after a while of dating, then all of a sudden you're like, okay, here's what I'm coming in with. I understand that too. Yeah, I get it. And, you know, another way to think about this as an analogy is like, let's say you're going to start watching this new series on Netflix. And, you know, the first episode seems great and really promising, but you know, do you want to commit to watching potentially five or 10 seasons of the show and then having a finale that where the screenwriters and producers fuck you over because right. you didn't wrap up the story right. And then you feel like you've wasted 
five or 10 years of your life, you know, committed to this show. I think oftentimes in relationships, we want that preview of like, is the ending going to be worth it? And mm. so we want all the information and the story points now to make sure that it's worth Oh my God, imagine. Going down that path. And that is something people I think look to on social media too, to be like, Ooh, let me, I mean, I don't know if anyone else has done this, I would, but it's like you go on and you're like, oh, they're their friends, they're their family, this is where they go on vacation, this is what they like to eat, and then you picture your whole life with them, and then you get to one picture and you're like, ooh, they don't like dogs, next, you yeah. know, it's not <laughs> going to work out. So stop having that picture of like what you envision this relationship to be and exactly what it's going to look like at this point down the road, because it's probably not going to look like that. And when you set up this certain fantasy for how the relationship should go, it's hard for it to live up to those expectations and you're going to become disappointed. Like just enjoy the journey and it's going to be a bumpy ride at times. And that's okay. Like relationships aren't easy. I always think now too, it's like if I could boil it down, like the starting point, Besides, like, an initial, like, attraction for whatever elements go into it. But it's, like, do you like talking to this person? To me, that's, like, the ultimate sign of, like, okay, there could be room to grow here where it's, like, do you enjoy their worldview? And is that something that you want to, like, get into and, like, merge with? Like, listen to their processing. Like, that to me is, that is huge. Yeah, and if you don't connect that way early on, it's not a very promising sign. <laughs> Not good. You don't want to be gritting your teeth like this motherfucker's talking again when it's the person you're supposed to be talking to. And it's going to be hard no matter what. So it's like you want to at least love their processing. Yeah, at least at the beginning. Now, 20 years in, like it can be different. Like <laughs> there's this term in the literature, we call it normal marital hatred. <laughs> and it's like... <laughs> <laughs> it sounds it sounds terrible, but it, it, it happens. That's an official like term. It's an official term, normal marital <laughs> hatred, where it's just like the things that you initially found endearing and cute and attractive about your partner can become grating and irritating. And like, you know, this happened to me during the COVID pandemic where my partner was working from home all the time. And I'm somebody who was always working from home. And we've been together this year is actually 25 years. Congratulations. Together, so this is like a Huge. very long-term relationship. But us like 24 hours a day under the same roof, it was like, too fucking much like i can hear you chewing in the other room and that's really bothering me right now i can't get my work done and you know it's just like these dumb little things but that happens when you spend so much time together but normal it, it, marital hatred so that's an it's an okay thing basically yes and I'm, I'm not saying just to be clear i'm not saying i hate my partner but we just have these little things where you get on each other's nerves like if you spend enough time together it will happen and that's where it's important to each have your alone time, you know, and to have those boundaries and going back to what we said earlier, you want to have that individuality in the relationship and you want to have that intimacy. If it's too much of one or the other, that's where things get, you know, dicey oftentimes. Now I, I will say there are some people where having a lot of individuality like works for them. You know, I did a couple podcast episodes recently on people who today identify as what we call solos. And they're people who basically want to live a single life, but they still want sexual and romantic relationships, just not in the traditional mold or model. So they might live in their own house and day to day, it sort of looks like they're a single person, but they've got a relationship with somebody else who lives in their own house. And so- Another solo. Yeah. And so they just wow. get together when it works for them. Um, or they might be in a consensually non-monogamous or open relationship. They might not have any primary partner. Like, so it's just 
when it comes to relationships, you can build your own path. And I think that that's the beauty of the world that we live in today is that you don't have to follow the script anymore. So stop trying to picture and force the fairy tale ending because that might not be what would actually work out best for you in the end. I think it's going to be a huge sigh of relief for people to know that normal marital hatred is something <laughs> we're like, oh my God, it's not, it's not insane for me to hate this person's process for picking movies or whatever it is. Because it's like, you know, it's like day in and day out if it's going to be something that pops up a lot. My girlfriend and I have a real thing with like the temperature in the bedroom. I like it warmer. She likes it hotter. I mean, I like it warmer. She likes it colder. So I can imagine, I mean, and I like complain about it a lot. So we'll have it cold, but then I'll be like, it's cold, it's cold, it's cold. I can imagine the normal marital hatred on her end bubbling up in my extreme amount. Because she was like, we could change it whatever to just make you not, it's better for you to just not be complaining all the time. And I'll be like, no, no, we'll do it your way. But then the price is, I'm I'm complaining. You know, we have the exact same issue in our relationship. And, um, you know, we we still haven't done it yet, but I think the one solution could potentially be getting that comforter where each side of it optimizes. I get ads for that motherfucking thing. Yes, all the time. Totally. Do you like it hot or cold in the bedroom? I'm I'm the one who likes it cold. (laughs) So here's the thing. Here's the problem. You and her, you guys are right. That is how you're supposed to keep it for sleep optimization, which I've been getting really into recently. I'm taking my freaking magnesium. I'm covering myself in magnesium oils. Like, you guys are right. But, god damn, it's freezing in here. (laughs) Yeah, well, we're all different. This is our final segment, who, what, where, when, and how. Who do men idolize <laughs> was there any idols that like emerged from sexual fantasies where most men were like i wish i was jason statham yeah so when it comes to you know the men who appear in our fantasies when they are celebrities they're the ones who are like the really chiseled guys like the mm. tatums and ryan goslings of the world were very high up there on the list oh, interesting and that's for like the men, like a straight man would have, because all I have men in my sexual fantasies too, and I'll kind of like be self-actualizing them, but it could take, it's more about the energy behind it. But so that would be with like straight men would also have Channing Tatum in their sexual fantasies. He's killing it. Sometimes, but I think the more interesting thing is the way that we represent ourselves in our fantasies. And it's Mm. not the case that we're like literally becoming a different person. Like it's not like, we want to be Channing Tatum, but in our fantasies, we're changing ourselves in some way that makes us feel more comfortable and confident in ourselves. And that might be a more masculine version of the self. And so I find that across gender, across sexual orientation, we're changing our bodies, our genitals, our personalities, our level of dominance and submission. Like we're changing ourselves in ways that make us feel more comfortable and confident in ourselves. And for straight men, that's often like, becoming this more masculine version of the self. It's also true for gay men. Gay men actually change themselves in their fantasies way more than straight men do. Really? Yep. Huh. What about lesbians? Um, they are knitting. They're, <laughs> they're actually similar to heterosexual women in terms of like the level of change that they have in their fantasies. So straight men actually change themselves the least. But when they change themselves, they're likely to change their genitals. Like they want to have a bigger penis, right? Oh, that's um, so interesting. Women, regardless of sexual orientation, and especially gay men, are changing their body type, their shape and appearance, uh, and also their personality, and often like wanting to be more dominant than they are uh, in real life. 
that is interesting. What do men fear? A big one that comes to mind immediately for me is not being desired or wanted. You know, at the core of so many men's sexual fantasies is this wanting to be wanted. And even something like a threesome where you've got two other people who are like fawning over you, that's not necessarily a fantasy about you wanting to have a threesome or multiple partners. It's about you wanting to be overwhelmingly desired by others. And so a big fear is just not being wanted and being rejected. And I think that's actually a big part of the reason why we're seeing the rise of the incel movement, uh, because you've got all of these men who really want sexual and romantic connections, but they can't find them because they're always being rejected by mm. women. And, um, you know, there, there can be various reasons for that. I've done whole podcasts on this, but yeah, that, that wanting to be desired is a huge thing for guys. And then, so then they find the desire in the camaraderie of other people being like, fuck these people. Yeah. And it, well, in incel, it's becoming an identity and where people will find a community because they feel totally rejected by society and totally rejected by women. And so it's becoming a problem because it's radicalizing some sure. of the And yeah. And I, I don't know what the solution is. Because they're really then kind of locking themselves into that. So, like, say they're like, okay, I'm now this, this is my community, this is who I, I'm guessing they're not going out to brunch, but whatever the fuck they're doing on the weekends, and then say they, like, make a guy contact with some girl, and they start flirting, and then they meet someone, what, what, the, what do they do with their friend group? Do they have to, like, be in the closet about it? Like, what, or do they then say, no, I can't be with you, I'm an incel? They're stuck. Yeah, you know, it, it, it's interesting. Like, I think in a lot of the modern incel world, it's actually just a rehash of, like, the 90s and early 2000s, like, pickup artist culture like just come back with a vengeance with a different label and you know i see there was a lot of misogyny in the early like pickup movement days where it's like you know this idea of negging like you need to put a woman down you need to lower her self-worth relative to yours so that she'll be nagging you and you know it feels like we're just kind of going back to that in some ways with a, a different brand or different form of misogyny I hate that the, I know it's not like textbook nagging, but that type of flirting where someone's like mean, I personally, I don't pick up on sarcasm well. For me, not into it. Nope. Nope. You're not like that way either when someone's like stupid beard, dumb dumb or whatever they did say for (laughs) nothing, which I do not feel your beard is great. I wouldn't, but I would never say that. That would never be how I would flirt, but I hate that type of flirting. I've never had anyone say that to me before, but I have. It's not because it's not, I was trying to think that if I were someone, that would be me trying to flirt as an, as uh, someone who does nagging. That it was a weird one. As someone who does nagging, if I was like, Oh, look at your like shoes or whatever you say. Yeah. So if somebody said a negative comment about my beard, um, that would not be a, turn on to me. I would not be interested in that person. But if instead they said like, you have a really great beard, you should be a beard model. Um, or if they said, um, nice beard, can I sit on it? Like, I don't know. Yes. <laughs> no, but, now we're talking. Yeah. Desire is, I relate to that as the, um, desire to me is the most attractive thing. That's the, so that supersedes everything. Someone wanting something that you can then provide. You're like, yes. Desire being kind and complimenting and also, you know, being funny. Like, I, and I know that like, there's always a risk with humor when it comes to like dating, flirting and attraction, because sometimes people don't share the same sense of humor. Um, sometimes when you do, it's so fun. Yeah. And if you do, it's great, but sometimes, you know, you might be a little too crude for them or whatever, but uh, yeah, it's, but being nice, being funny. I think being nice is huge too. Where do men feel safest? 
you know, that's one of those things where a lot of guys don't really feel like they have a place where they can be safe and be themselves. And that, I think that was something that the pandemic taught a lot of guys was like how tenuous so many of their social connections were. This was especially true for straight guys where, you know, they used to have these opportunities to get together with their friends or their buddies. And it was often like bonding over sports or at a bar or something like that. Right. Activities. Yeah, it was, it was shared activities. But then when COVID happened and we went into lockdown and you couldn't do the shared activities anymore, they lost everything because their friends weren't calling to check in on them. And they didn't realize like how important those shared activities were for them. And so I would say, you know, for men feeling safe, it's often when they're engaging in shared activities with their friends, because men are often culturally conditioned not to like share or talk about their intimacy or feelings. Um, The other place would be within their romantic relationships. Uh, For men, usually the single biggest source of social and emotional support in their lives is their romantic partner. And so their partner is really key to making them feel safe. Um, and, And so, you know, again, that goes back to like the insult thing we were talking about. If you don't have a partner or a place where you feel safe, you need to find that somewhere else. And oftentimes it's in these online communities. And sometimes those online communities aren't healthy for us. I wonder if the incel community is very it's homoerotic. Like, I, I feel like if I were a gay guy, I would definitely pop in there. I mean, I know that's predatory. That is predatory and it's wrong. I'm just just spitballing well, over here, but it seems a little homoerotic. Well, it might, it might seem that way, but there's actually also a lot of homophobia in the oh, incel yeah. community. Oh, yeah, I would imagine. Um, right. Although I have seen some recent articles about gay incels and even femcels, you know, women who are incels. And so I'm like, this is this is an interesting world. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's, a, there's a lot going on now. Yeah. When do men admit they need help? Well, it depends what that thing is. You know, if it's asking for directions, um, it might be a little while before they're willing to admit defeat. Um, you know, men in general... If you look at the research and data for years, we've got decades of work on this, men are less willing to ask for help than women are. And it ties back into those traditional ideas of masculinity and asking for help being this sign of weakness. And so this is a big part of the reason why men are much less likely to go to the doctor when they've got a health issue. They don't take care of their health as much because going to a doctor and you know potentially being diagnosed with something like that's a sign of weakness or, or defeat. And so the, the end result is that that's actually bad for men's health because by the time they do go to a doctor, something that could have easily been treated earlier on has then become a much bigger issue. And so it bites us in the ass when we're too proud to ask for help. And so... You know, it would be nice if we lived in a world where everybody felt like they could ask for help when they needed it. But those traditional notions of masculinity often get in the way of men asking for help. The one exception to this, and I found this interesting during my COVID research, was I did a lot of work on people's sex lives during the pandemic and how they changed. And as I said, men are much less likely to seek out medical help than women. But when men experienced sexual problems during the pandemic, they were much more likely to seek out medical help than women were, right? So if it's a problem with your penis, you're likely to address it. But that's also tied to your sense of masculinity, right? Because if the penis isn't working, that's a big threat to the sense of self. They're like, so too bad. So maybe there needs to be a medical reframe where it's like, if you're feeling sad, alone, or anxious, it's, I know you might feel it in your head and your heart, but it's coming from your balls. And so, or something where then they could be like reframing it all through their penis, whatever it takes to get people to get into some place and be curious about their health. You know what I mean? Yep. 
And fun fact, I've not heard anybody talking about this, but there was this huge surge in Viagra prescriptions that happened during COVID, right? That is really interesting in and of itself. And why was it happening? You know, it, it was a time when a lot of guys were feeling very stressed and anxious, and that was translating to penis performance. Right. And that threat to their sense of masculinity and the, the way that a lot of guys coped with it was by taking the little blue pill. Right. And they're like, yeah, you know, maybe things aren't going well at work right now. Maybe we got this going on, but I've got a raging boner. If my dick works, everything's okay. <laughs> How do men show that they trust you? I think trust is often expressed through vulnerability. And so if a guy is willing to share things with you that they don't normally share with someone else, that's a sign that they trust you, right? Because if they're going to share information about the self that could potentially be used against them or that could make them look bad, that's a sign that they have trust for you. And it can even come up from the smallest of things, like the simple question of how was your day today? If somebody just says, fine, um, you know, that, that's sort of like the socially normative response or it was good or whatever. But if they instead were to say, you know, it's actually kind of a hard day and I messed up something at work. You know, if they can admit or say something like that that was difficult for them and share mm. that with you, you know, that's a big sign of trust. This is making me think about my dad in terms of asking for help because I, I wonder, I haven't actually seen him say he needs help with something. And it's just me. I just, I guess I would think of it on the individual level with him where it's like, oh, he just doesn't really ask for help. But it, now I'm wondering, like, uh, yeah, it's it, when you think of it generationally, too, because I'm sure, oh, yeah. you know, he doesn't really put himself in situations where he would need help, except for what also made me think of it with the directions. I've never seen my stepmom get more frustrated with him than when they're driving and him not asking for directions. Because he's yeah. like, the, he'll have, I've got, the, it's on the map. The map says take a left. Well, the, there's water on the left. So the map is not right. Well, I'm going to figure it out. And he won't ask. I'd say the most feminine thing about myself, actually, is I will ask for help immediately. Like, the second something, I'm going to need some help with this. I don't know if it's like uh, where that comes from, but I will ask for help real quick. You know, I've gotten much better at that because it's like i don't want to fucking waste my time anymore like why right. sit here pursuing the wrong solution for a long time when there was an easy fix to it just to ask for some help it can save you time and then you can go do something fun instead exactly thank you so much for being here where can people find you my website is sexandpsychology.com. You can find links to my blog and podcast there. I'm also on all of the socials. I'm on Instagram at Justin J. Laymiller. I'm on Twitter or whatever we're calling it at Justin Laymiller. <laughs> my name's not the same across the different platforms because apparently there's another Justin Laymiller who's like a 12-year-old boy. So if you're following oh, no. it, sounds like a 12-year-old boy, it probably is. So just make sure you're following the right Justin. Laymiller. The right one. There's a there's a girl she's got to be like 18 named Emma Wilman spelled the exact same way and she's at some super conservative university and like she was like posting a lot of videos for a while so and she was hashtagging Emma Wilman in them and it you know it's just all it's a lot of fun out there online. What is your what's the name of your book again just so people can check that out too? My book is Tell Me What You Want: The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You Improve your sexuality. I also have a textbook called The Psychology of Human Sexuality. It just came out in its third edition. So if you're looking for a comprehensive guide to all things about the science of sex, that's another resource to check out. Hell yeah. And Justin taught at Harvard for a little bit too. Boom! <laughs>
bam, and you didn't bring it up the whole time, which has got to be a record for someone who's ever taught or done anything with Harvard, <laughs> because usually they get that in there at least in the first half an hour. They say, I spent some time in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and you're like, doing what? So <laughs> thank you so much for being here. We really appreciate it. And thank you guys. Please DM me at M. Wilman on Instagram, email, and send in your questions to AMA at Betches.com for our next guest, or leave us a voicemail, 201 754 8351. I love your thoughts on some of the questions that we went over, especially the one we talked about on the UUP podcast. I'm really interested in other thoughts on that. I'll talk to you next week when we ask men anything. Ask Men Anything is produced by Sean Kilby and Rebecca Steinberg. Editing by Rebecca Steinberg. Guest booking by Anna Zagzag. Send your emails to ama at betches.com. Betches.